Take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of John, and we are in chapter 16. John chapter 16. We've been studying this final discourse that uh, Jesus is having with His disciples. Really, it started back in John 14. And we've seen that one of Jesus' intentions in this discussion is to bring encouragement and hope to His disciples who are deeply troubled and discouraged and in despair, particularly because Jesus, this one that they love, this one that they have spent three years with, now speaks of going away. Indeed, He's just a few hours away from His suffering and His torture and His execution. But Jesus wants to assure His disciples that His departure is not for the purpose of abandoning them. He says in chapter 14, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. I'm going to prepare a place for you in the Father's house so that one day we might be together forever because Jesus' death on the cross will remove the barrier that separates men from God, namely their sin. So His sacrifice is the key that unlocks heaven's doors and flings them open to all sinners who believe in Him. That's what Jesus means when He says, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And so, the disciples then are to go into the world and spread that message of hope. The problem is, as we saw last week, the disciples are to bear witness about Jesus to a world that will hate them and persecute them. That's the bad news. But the good news is that Jesus promises that they will not be testifying about Jesus alone. Instead, Jesus says, it will be better for you if I depart from you physically, because while Jesus is God with us, the Holy Spirit is God in us. And Jesus says, the Spirit will testify about me. You're not doing this in your own power. You're not doing this in your own strength. You're going to do it in the power of the Spirit. Now, This is not just relevant for those 11 disciples 2,000 years ago. It's relevant to you. If you are a disciple of Jesus, your mission is to tell the world about Jesus and the hope that is found in Him. And like those first disciples, you too are going to go out into a world that is full of hatred and hostility to Christ and His gospel. Yes, even here in America, there's increasing resistance and opposition. And yet, nevertheless, through you, Harbin's Church, the world is supposed to hear the gospel and be changed by the gospel. Are you feeling overwhelmed yet by that mission? Are you feeling intimidated by that? If so, then you can identify with the original 11 disciples who were very weak and lowly and trembling like, like them. We are faced with a very daunting and even scary mission. But again, Jesus doesn't just tell the disciples, you're going you're gonna to go out into the world that's going to hate you and kill you, and good luck with that. Have a nice life, and I'll see you on the other side. Instead, Jesus says to them, my spirit will be with you. And he's, he's saying to you, Harvin's Church, you too have the spirit of Christ in you, and so you, like those first disciples, will not be alone. The spirit will effectively bear witness about Jesus to the world through his church. So let's take a closer look at Jesus' encouragement and see exactly how the spirit will work through you. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 16 
And we're going to begin uh, in the middle of verse 4. It's actually verse 4b, I guess, if you want to be technical about that. It starts a new paragraph here. And we'll read on down through verse 11. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, our great helper, Father, I pray that you would help us this morning as we look at your word. I pray that you would illuminate the text. I pray that you would help this to be not just academic information that we are pouring into our brains, but life-changing, soul-changing, soul-transformation words that will impact our lives. So, Father, help us to see clearly what you're saying, and Father, help us to see and savor Jesus, and help us to rely on the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray these things this morning in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You may have heard the expression, what you don't know can't hurt you. And I suppose in some cases that's true. But there are many times where it's not true. Ignorance is not always bliss. I remember reading an article that talked about how men are far less likely to go to the doctor compared to women. Some of you wives know what that's like, and you're frustrated by that. And usually it's because men tend to, at least this is what I think, tend to have this this false sense of indestructibility and tend to underestimate their mortality. One physician said many men go to the doctor for the first time in their 40s on a stretcher with a heart attack. And the point is that if only these people would have had someone to come alongside them and point out and help them to see the brutal truth about their condition and urge them to make the necessary changes in their health, disaster could have been averted. Because what they didn't know was indeed hurting them and even killing them. Now, if it's dangerous to be ignorant about physical problems that can destroy your body, how much more dangerous is it to be ignorant of a spiritual problem that can destroy your soul? And so what we need is is for someone to come alongside us to reveal to us the brutal truth about our condition and to reveal to us the cure and to help us to see our need for change. And we learn in our text today that the Holy Spirit, the Helper, is the one who comes and reveals to man the truth about his spiritual uh, situation uh, and bearing witness to the truth about the cure for his condition that man might be saved from spiritual disaster, from death. Now, how exactly will the Spirit bear witness about the truth? Jesus says He's going to do it through the ministry of conviction. Look at verse 7. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world. 
Now, what, what does that mean uh, to convict the world? What we have here is courtroom language, but it's not quite what you might think. Now, some folks, when they look at this text, they see here the Spirit going before a judge as a prosecuting attorney and exposing the world's sin for the purpose of condemnation. It's not exactly how the Greek word alencho is used here. Alencho translated as conviction. Yes, the Spirit is serving as a prosecutor in a sense, but as British preacher David Jackman rightly explains, the prosecutor, the Holy Spirit, is not such, so much appealing to the judge so that a guilty verdict is returned against the world. Rather, what he is doing is influencing the prisoner in the dock, the individual sinner like you and me, so that we bring a plea of guilty to the judge so that instead of trying to pretend that we are better than we are, the Spirit shows us how serious our spiritual condition is, and it drives us to the solution, which is Christ. So, this convicting ministry of the Spirit is not as a prosecutor convincing a judge, but as someone who is convincing us. And so, what the Spirit is doing in this convicting work is not harsh and cold. It's actually grace. It's like the doctor giving the the brutal truth uh, uh, about the middle-aged man's heart condition, and he's doing it not to be mean, but to persuade the man to change course, that he might live. That's why some translations don't use the word convict, they use the word convince. And there are three specific things that the Holy Spirit comes into the world to to convict the world about. And the first way He will work is the focus of verse 9. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin. Now, again, uh, the purpose of the Spirit's conviction is not condemnation but persuasion. And the reason why we need to be persuaded in regards to our sin is because in our sin, we all have a tendency to see ourselves as not as bad as we actually are. We all have a tendency to construct a false reality, an illusion where we might acknowledge, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm really not all that bad. Surely not bad enough to deserve the judgment of God. I mean, hell? Really? That's for really bad people, like Adolf Hitler, or that guy who just shot up that school in Texas last week, or child abusers. And we have a tendency to be very quick to detect, spot, and even judge other people's sins while being largely blind to our own guilt. It's like the time where I was sharing the gospel with my father, who was an alcoholic and a thief and an adulterer and violently abusive, and I'm telling him about his sin and his need for Christ, and he's telling me, well, at least I'm not like Timothy McVeigh. Some of you older folks know that name. He blew up that building in Oklahoma City back in 1995. My dad said, well, at least I'm not blowing up buildings. That was the best he had. Now, we all know what it's like to do that. Because we're all sinners. We've all done that. We justify ourselves by minimizing our badness. We take the evidence around us and we twist it and we manipulate it in a self-protective kind of way to make it seem like we're really not that bad off after all. This is why some of you have been sharing the gospel with the same person 
for 10 years, for 15 years, for 25 years, and there is this resistance. Why is that? It's because people naturally don't see their spiritual condition. So don't be shocked if you encounter resistance. Jesus says in verse 9 that the Spirit brings conviction because the world didn't believe in Jesus. If they aren't going to listen to Jesus, what makes you think they're going to hear you? Well, Jesus tells us that there is one thing that will open up someone's eyes and ears to their spiritual need, and that is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit comes to shatter the illusion and convince us of the truth about our sinful condition. Not a conviction in the sense that we may feel this very slight pang of conscience about some things that we have done, and, and not a conviction in, in the sense that we rather casually or flippantly admit, uh, you know, we're not perfect. I know I'm not perfect, but instead, the Spirit as Robert Murray McShane says, comes to the sinner, uh, he gives the sinner a sense of the dreadfulness of his sin and to make him feel how surely he is a lost sinner. Now, a great example of this convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit is found in um, the book of Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit comes in power and the apostle Peter, guided by the Spirit, preaches to a crowd of thousands, he exposes the sin of the people, he says, you're guilty. And Acts 2 says that in response to the Spirit-empowered preaching of Peter, the crowd was cut to the heart, and in desperation they cry out, brothers, what must we do to be saved? That's the ministry of the Spirit. The Spirit cuts to the heart, and it shows, He shows us how we have rebelled against God and how we've been in the wrong and how God is in the right, uh, and, and that the, the, the purpose of this conviction, therefore, is to humble us and move us towards repentance before God and a deep desire to be forgiven and made right with God. Whenever that cutting, wor uh, wor cutting work of the heart happens, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit in action. Now, why do you need to know this? You need to know this to guard yourself from the notion that you can save anyone, that you have the power to change a sinful, rebellious, God-hating heart and turn it to Christ. If you are sharing Christ with unbelievers and unbelievers are getting saved, it is because the Holy Spirit is working through you to touch those hearts and bring about that conviction. So it is His work. It's not your work. And that's great news. Because if salvation is a work of the power of the Spirit, that really takes the pressure off, doesn't it? Yes, we share. Yes, we witness. Yes, we testify. We must. But we rest ultimately not on our own abilities to explain the gospel not on our own cleverness or powers of persuasion, but instead we rely on the Spirit's power to convict and bring about change. And we need to remember this because sometimes we, we may feel guilty if we have botched a witnessing opportunity. Maybe we're telling a friend or a neighbor or a coworker about Jesus and we just stumble and bumble and we feel like we have done an awful job. Anybody feel like that? Anybody know what that's like? And so then we replay the conversation, don't we, over and over again in our heads for the next five hours. And we think, man, why didn't I say that? 
Or why did I say that? I do my best witnessing in my imagination. I hate that. And when it, when it actually comes to the guys right there in front of me, I'm completely botching it. It's frustrating. And we think, why did I do that? That was stupid. And so you have this post-witnessing evaluation session, and you're just beating yourself up. But take heart. Nobody is going to hell because you're not as eloquent as Billy Graham was. Be comforted and encouraged by that. Your job is not to be eloquent. Your job is to bear witness to the truth and then watch and pray and see what the Spirit might do through you because it's He, it's the Spirit who brings about the conviction of the lost sinner, not you. Now, another reason why this is encouraging is because if it is the Spirit that does the work and not you, that means that there is no one who is so lost that they cannot be saved. There are some of you who have deep concerns about a friend or a family member or some other loved one, and they have rebelled against God so much. Their hearts are so hard. They have stiff-armed Jesus so many times, and it seems impossible that they could ever be saved. And you have shared, and you have shared, and you have shared the gospel with them over and over and over again, and you are so discouraged, and it seems like a lost cause. Do you have anybody in your life like that? This person is so anti-God. They are so wrapped up in their own self-righteous rebellion against God. They are so anti-Christ that it seems impossible that they would ever come to Jesus. And yet Jesus says in regards to salvation, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. If it was up to your persuasive abilities to powerfully share the gospel, then the salvation of that person would be impossible. If it was up to that person's ability to figure it all out themselves and make themselves right with God, it would be impossible. But brothers and sisters, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit comes and it is He who can bring about this sense of deep conviction in any sinner. The arm of the Lord is not so short that there are some out of His reach. And so in all of our witnessing and evangelism, let us not forget who does the work and to whom we must rely on and to whom we must pray. It is good that you are sharing the gospel with unbelievers, but do you spend as much time praying as you do preaching? Do you beseech the Holy Spirit, the one who brings about the conviction? Do you plead with God for the lost people in your life? A prayerless evangelism is an impotent evangelism because now you're making it all about you. And we should be speaking to God about men as much as we are speaking to men about God. So the first work of the Holy Spirit in the world is to convict the world regarding sin, to show us our spiritual need, to convince us that we're worse than we think we are, and that as rebels against God, we deserve the very wrath of God. But that's not all the Spirit does. And thank God for that, or else we would be in really big trouble. How depressing would it be if we knew that we were lost and dead in our sins, and yet we did not know the remedy? What a horrible state that would be. I'm reminded of of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which opens by highlighting man's sin problem through the character Christian. 
who has that heavy burden on his back, which represents the man's sin and his conviction over that sin. And the man is reading his Bible and he's weeping and he's trembling and he's fearful of the wrath of God. And he's asking, what shall I do to remove this burden from my back? That's an important question. We may realize that we are sinners, that we are wrong, and that God is right. But what do we do about it? Because it's not the bad or guilty feelings of the sinner that saves. It's faith in Jesus. And we deal with those who are distraught over their sin by pointing them to Christ because people will try to deal with their burden over sin in other ways outside of belief in Christ. And that's why we need the second work of the Holy Spirit described by Jesus, namely that the Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, the Spirit will convict concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Again, Bunyan illustrates this need for us to be uh, convinced about true righteousness uh, when we see Christian in his book lamenting over his dreadful situation, and he meets a man named Evangelist. And Evangelist directs Christian to the cross, and Christian begins to travel in that direction. The heavy burden is still on his back, uh, but he's moving in the right direction. But after traveling for a bit, Christian encounters someone on the road named Worldly Wise Man. And Worldly asks Christian about the burden on his back. And Christian says, well, I have this burden of conviction of sin. And Evangelist has told me that if I, I, I need to journey in this direction to be free of the burden. And Worldly says, no, 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 you don't have to do that. That's ridiculous. Don't listen to Evangelist. You can't pay attention to what he says. Evangelist is, is, is trouble. You don't have to go that far because right over here is the town of Morality. And there lives a man named Legality and his son, Civility, and they can help, get you, get, help you get rid of your burden and help you to feel better by learning good works. Now, Bunyan's point is that one of the primary ways that man attempts to ease his conscience and deal with his sin problem is through being good, through trying to be righteous. That's exactly why Jesus says that the Holy Spirit not only convicts sin, but also convicts regarding righteousness. In other words... Just as the Spirit reveals the truth about sin, our unrighteousness, the Spirit also reveals to the world the truth about righteousness, specifically who is righteous and who is not, whose righteousness is sufficient and whose is insufficient. And many will deal with the burden of sin the wrong way, and they will dwell in the city of morality and hang out with legality and civility and will seek to be made right with God by being religious and moral and through rule-keeping. That is a false and insufficient righteousness. It's a Christless religion. Now, thematically, in the book of John, we have seen a pattern of false righteousness, and we see people who think that they are righteous— and, that and they think that their righteousness earns them favor with God and life in heaven. But these same people end up being exposed as unrighteous. As a matter of fact, we see an example of this in this very chapter. If you back up to verse 2, Jesus says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a, a service to God. These religious people think they are righteous and that they are doing God's work, and yet they are murderers. Or you can go to Matthew 23, where Jesus is confronting the Pharisees, the religious leaders, men who pride themselves on looking outwardly good and holy through religious rule-keeping. They think that they are righteous, and Jesus says this to them. 
He says, you clean the outside of the cup and the plates, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that, exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, <clears throat> you won't get into heaven with a fake righteousness, a righteousness that looks outwardly impressive, but it's a front. It's a mask. And underneath the mask, in the heart, is sin. And here's the rub. That's everybody. That's the condition of all of mankind. Some of us might be able to look outwardly impressive and good, but who here has totally pure hearts? Who may not have ever stolen anything, but you've greedily coveted something? Who here may not have ever physically murdered, but you've hated someone? Uh, who here may have never outwardly committed adultery, but your heart is full of lust? You see the problem? Unless your righteousness exceeds that, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. We can't be in fellowship with the God whose eyes are too pure to look on evil. And so therefore, we are sinners and rebels to the core. We can't please God with our efforts to be righteous. Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Epic fail! We think we're doing good. But in truth, God says no one does good, not even one. And so going back to Pilgrim's Progress... Bunyan describes what happened to Christian after following worldly wise man's advice. He heads out to the town of Morality towards Mr. Legality's house, but in front of him is this steep mountain that's hanging high over him, and in that moment, the burden on his back feels heavier than ever, and, and from the mountain are flashes of lightning and fire, and it seems like this mountain's going to fall over and crush him, and Christian becomes terrified. And this was Bunyan's way of telling us that our attempts at being righteous enough for God, it's a dead end. To try to deal with our sin by being good enough will only increase the burden of our sin because we will never be as good as God requires. The prophet Isaiah demolishes any hope that we may have in the righteousness of man when he says in Isaiah 64, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garments. We think we are so great, and we think we are so awesome, but the Holy Spirit comes along and He tells us the brutal truth about our condition, about our so-called righteousness. This is one of the reasons why the religious leader, leaders hated Jesus so much. They loved their own sense of morality, and they were very proud of themselves, but being in the presence of Jesus, who really is good, and who really is righteous, and who really is holy, exposed them for what they really were, and they could not stand it. And the Spirit not only convicts in regards to false righteousness, but He convinces the world about the true righteousness of Jesus Christ. Look closely at verse 10. Jesus says, the Spirit will convict concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. There is something about Jesus dying and being raised from the dead and ascending to the Father that sends a message to the world from the Spirit about righteousness. And the message the Spirit sends us is that all of the people who opposed Jesus were wrong. Think about the lies that Jesus' enemies spread about him that he was unrighteous, that he was a drunkard, that he was a glutton, that he was a deceiver, that he was demon-possessed. 
and a false prophet, that he was a blasphemer. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 9, verse 24, the religious leaders confidently say about Jesus, we know that this man is a sinner. This man, who was hung up on a cross, a form of execution that was reserved for the lowliest people and the most heinous of criminals, a form of execution that many Jews would have seen as proof that this man was evil and not from God. As the Scripture says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. But Jesus says, the Spirit will convict concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. He's saying that my resurrection and my ascension to heaven will be a word to the world about righteousness. Indeed, it will be the irrefutable proof that I am who I said that I was. It will be the proof that I am accepted by God. It's the proof that my sacrifice on the cross is acceptable to God. It's going to prove that I wasn't an unrighteous sinner because death could not hold me in the end. Jesus says his going to the Father will result in the sending of the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes with power in Acts chapter 2, it vindicates Jesus' righteousness and proves that Jesus was right. That's exactly Peter's point in Acts chapter 2 when he says this to the crowds in his sermon on Pentecost, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And because Jesus was indeed perfectly righteous, that provides hope for unrighteous sinners. To attempt to find favor in God's eyes through our own righteousness and religiousness only increases the burden on our backs because there is no way we can ultimately live up to God's perfect expectations. Jesus Christ stepped into a culture where the religious leaders served as brutal spiritual taskmasters over the people, burdening them with a seemingly endless amount of rules and regulations. Do this and don't do that. Observe this. Be careful not to do this. Try harder. Do more. Be better. Oh, you failed again. Pick yourself up. Try again. Work hard enough. And then God will be pleased with you if you're lucky. And that religious system in first century Israel was crushing the people who were burdened not only by their own sins, but now twice burdened as the rules and regulations of the religious leaders were piled onto their backs. And man today struggles under the same burden, and that weight will crush us like a mountain collapsing on our heads. That's the bad news. But the good news is that Jesus comes along And he says to a world being crushed under the burden of sin and false righteousness, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Unlike the Pharisees, unlike your religious leaders, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, rest, true rest, rest from the weariness caused by sin and guilt. And some of you know all too well what that's like, that weariness, that burden of sin, that burden of your failed past weighing you down. Jesus offers rest from that. He offers rest from running on the endless treadmill of false righteousness in a vain attempt to be free and relieve your guilt. 
Jesus is telling you that the answer is not to work and work and work and work and work, which will only make you feel worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. The answer is to rest and rest and rest. What else do I do? Rest. Keep resting. And that rest is available through Jesus. When we come to Christ, our old, insufficient, crushing, unacceptable to God, false righteousness is then cast aside, and we stop running, and we stop trying, and stop climbing the ladder, and instead, we by faith receive His righteousness, His righteousness, which was proved to be acceptable to the Father. And that righteousness can be ours. It can be yours. And how can that be? Well, that leads to the third work of the Holy Spirit in the world. So he convicts concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and one more thing. He convicts the world concerning judgment. Concerning judgment, verse 11, because the ruler of this world is judged. Who's the ruler of this world? Satan. Satan. And Jesus says that Satan is judged. And how is the devil judged? The devil was judged ultimately at the cross. In the, in the torment and mockery and death of Jesus, what, what looked to the world uh, like Satan's greatest victory was instead the crushing blow that crushed and obliterated the skull of the serpent. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that the cross is the final ending for Satan. Satan is still active and he's still roaming around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour, the Scripture says. So while we look forward to the future final defeat of Satan when he is cast into hell, Jesus' past work on the cross guarantees and secures that final defeat. And most relevant for us now, at the cross, Jesus defanged the devil and broke his power. In this moment, on the cross, when it seemed that evil had the upper hand, Jesus stripped Satan of the one weapon in his hand that could damn you and damn me to hell forever. And that weapon is accusation. And here's what's interesting. Maybe you've never thought of it this way before. But the devil is kind of like a counterfeit Holy Spirit. You ever thought of that? The devil, like the Spirit, brings forth and reveals sin. The devil says, I know what you did that one time. I know what evil thoughts were in your head the other day. I know those things you did that if others knew, you would be forever shamed. I know about that event you did 10 years ago. I know about that thing that happened this morning. And you call yourself a Christian? You sin. You are convicted in the courtroom. You are guilty. You are hopeless. So, so tell me this. What's even the point of trying to follow God? You failure. You failed again. But the Holy Spirit comes along with a different story. Satan brings forward the evidence of your sin to secure a guilty verdict and wants to drag you into hell with him. But the Spirit exposes sin not to condemn to hell, but to send hell-endangered sinners running with all their might to the one thing that can save them, and that's the cross. 
He sends hell-endangered sinners to the cross, and the Spirit also sends Christians to the cross who have forgotten what it is that really saves them. Yes, the Bible does say, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. But Jesus endured the curse, not because of anything he did wrong, but because of what you did wrong. It's at the cross that Jesus bore the sins of the world. Jesus bore the sin of unbelief, the sin of false righteousness, the sin of hatred towards God. All of those things that you have done, all of those things that I have done, all of those secret sins, all of those things in your past that you've done that shame you and torment you. If you are trusting in Christ, all of those things that you and I deserve to be judged for in hell forever was instead judged in Jesus on the cross. He bore the curse of God in our place. And if you by faith receive Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, something incredible happens. An amazing exchange takes place. Not only will you find that your sins, your unrighteousness was transferred to Jesus and punished in Him on the cross, but Jesus' very own righteousness is now transferred to you. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? He gets your sin, (laughs) you get his righteousness. That's pretty cool. You become clothed, not with the filthy, polluted, dirty rags of your false, worthless righteousness, but instead, in the eye of God, you are cleansed, robed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. That's what you do when the accuser of the brethren comes and drags up your past and tempts you to despair because of your failures over and over and over again. And the trap of Satan is that he wants us to navel-gaze and look at all the mess that we have done and wallow in the guilt and wallow in the shame. And as long as Satan can do that and help us to keep and make us keep our eyes on ourselves, he is winning the battle. What Satan does not want you to do is get your eyes off of yourself and get them on Christ. That's the solution. You people here this morning with extremely tender consciences. If you're here this morning as a believer, know that the God of this world, know that the God of this world is cast out of the courtroom. His case is thrown out. His accusations have been silenced. Your case has been settled. Your judgment has been passed. Your sins have been forgiven. The accuser's folder, which had a file on you this thick, is now empty. And he's got to say no. And he's got no say in your future. He's got no claim on you. Case closed. Courtroom dismissed. You're free and devil, you lost. And now, in that freedom, your mission is to go and proclaim that freedom to a lost world. Knowing that you will not do it alone, but that the helper the Holy Spirit will be with you who can reach and change even the most hardened of sinners. Now, if you're here this morning as an unbeliever, I want you to know that God loves unbelievers. (laughs) And He loves unbelievers so much that He sent Jesus into the world to die 
for unbelievers and to save unbelievers. I wonder if you are experiencing the convicting work of the Spirit right now. And if so, it may be hard for you to hear the the truth that you're a sinner, that you deserve judgment in hell, that you must repent and place your trust in Christ to be saved. But God is telling you these things through the Spirit because He loves you and because what you don't know can hurt you forever for an eternity in hell. The Spirit testifies to you this morning that the ruler of this world has been judged. And the implication is, why would you cast your lot with the one who's already been defeated? That doesn't make any sense. Why in the world, friend, would you stay on the sinking ship? Why be judged in hell forever when you can receive Christ today and accept what he did for you and find your sins judged at the cross? Going back one more time to Bunyan, he beautifully describes in Pilgrim's Progress that wonderful moment when Pilgrim finally finds freedom from his burdens. Bunyan writes that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a a sepulcher. And, And just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell off his back and began to tumble, and so continued to do so till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in. And I saw it no more. Bunyan goes on to write that after that burden rolls off of his back, Christian sees three shining ones, and the first one declares that his sins are forgiven, and the second one strips off his filthy rags and gives him new clothing, and the third one sets a mark on his forehead which points to God's secure ownership of him, and they sent Christian on his way towards the celestial city, and it says he gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. If you are hearing the voice of the Spirit in your heart this morning, If you are feeling that conviction, it is time to come to the cross, to lay your burden down, receive Christ, and be free. And really, there's there's a truth in that for both unbelievers and for believers as well, who are continuing to go back to the past instead of looking up to the cross. Communion, the Lord's Supper, is a reminder and a sign of the freedom and victory that Christ purchased for us on the cross. At the table, we've got the bread that points to Jesus' body hung on a cross. And here we have the fruit of the vine also, which points to Jesus' blood. And so, communion is an ordinance exclusively for believers. As you are taking the bread and the cup, you are making a proclamation of the gospel and what has saved you. So if you're an unbeliever, I, I, want you to, um, I want to ask you not to partake from the table, but instead consider what you've heard this morning. Consider the truth about sin, the truth about righteousness, the truth about judgment, and what the Spirit has said about those things this morning through His Word. Believers, I'll have you come forward in a moment, but I also want you to examine your heart before you come to the table. The convicting work of the Spirit isn't just for unbelievers. After we come to Christ, the Spirit continues His gracious work in revealing the sin in our lives, areas where we still need to grow, areas where we still need change, and, and maybe areas where we are stubborn and unrepentant. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup.
The gospel has set you free from sin. But if you are stubbornly hanging on to sin in your life, it means you're walking out of step with the gospel. And it is disrespectful to the body and blood of Christ that was broken and shed to free you from that. So as we go into a time of silent prayer here in just a moment, um, ask God through the Spirit's convicting work to help you to see the sin that you've been stubbornly walking in, if you are. And ask God to forgive you of that sin and ask for His help and repentance. And then you'll be able to come forward and partake. Let's go into a time of silent prayer for just a moment, and then I will direct our attention back up here to the table.